This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are here on My Turning Point, where this week we are joined by Foo Fighters drummer and frontman of his own band, Coattails, and member of Chevy Metal, Taylor Hawkins. Over the holidays, met up with Taylor at his place to talk about multiple turning points, including obviously the Foo Fighters and playing with Dave Grohl, and starting his career with Alanis Morissette. This was a really fun talk. Hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Let's get your turning points and then we'll we'll jump into this. And it's funny because, of course, I just saw you last week where you talked about the fact that you would be delivering me pizza if it wasn't for Alanis Morissette. That was, I mean, that that was definitely a turning point in my in my life, I, in my career, as it were. Um, yeah, um, meeting Alanis, which was very sort of a, not a big deal when I first met her. I was playing with Sass Jordan, who was a also a Canadian female singer artist and she was putting out her second record which wasn't doing very well and um, you know it was back in the day when record companies gave you money and tour support and all that kind of stuff it was sort of the tail end of the 80s going into the 90s and I think that she had had a a semi-hit Make You a Believer I think you remember that song? No I I, I felt like I feel like if I heard it though I I would know it like okay so the real turning point was I was working at this music store in Mission Viejo because I grew up in Laguna Beach and um, I had been kind of j- grounded there because I'd gotten a DUI when I was like 19. I was supposed to go to San Diego. I was I moved up to LA when I was 18, right out of high school, to try and find the next Jane's Addiction. I moved to Venice. I hated it. It was scary and dangerous and I'd grown up in Laguna Beach sort of sheltered you know Um, Laguna wasn't quite what it is now as far as being sort of such a fancy spot it was just sort of a sheltered little beach town you know so I moved to Venice 
Um, and I hated it, and I didn't find Jane's addiction. I just found, you know, addiction. St- yeah, addiction. Yeah, <laughs> and streetwalkers and and dirt and grime, and it was it was all right though. I needed to, I needed to to get out of there, and I kind of limped back to Orange County, and then I then I came back, and then I um I think I moved to Venice again, and then I moved to Hermosa. I think I kept getting farther <laughs> away from Hollywood and and L.A. Because I just didn't really like it. Irony is, I live in LA now. I mean, essentially, I, I live in the suburbs of LA, but I live in LA now. But I never. But but very much the sub. Yeah. Yeah, very much the suburbs. I mean, well, it's funny because I grew up in LA, but I live in Long Beach now. It's the same thing. It's, yeah. What I like is that it's a whole different world. Yeah, it's the suburbs, you know, basically. And so, um, yeah, I moved up there, and nothing really happened. I played in a few bands, Daisy Chain, and you know, all these sort of '90s sounding bands, you know. Then I came moved back home because I, I got in trouble with the law, got DUI, and um, <clears throat> I had to move in with my parents, which sucked. But uh, you know, it was um, it was it was a good moment in my life because I remember that being a serious turning point. And I just said, well, you know, I started going to junior college. I'd been kind of flirting with junior college here and there just to make my parents happy. But I just wasn't really interested, and I just then and I got this really great job working at one of these mom and pop music stores that no longer exist, the Music House, and um, and that was a turning point. I'm giving you a couple turning points, and you can decide what your favorite turning point was. But that was definitely a turning point. That sort of like getting out of because in high school, you know, I just because I was the best drummer in high school, I just. You know, kept telling everybody, "Well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go join the biggest band in the world from here," and that didn't happen. And none of the bands that I was putting together were any good, actually. Um, and I wasn't really writing songs or anything yet. And you know, all the bands I had were all sort of, cut, you know, trying to be like this or trying to be like that. Like, you know, we were trying to be like Jane's Addiction or trying to be like the Chili Peppers or trying to be like, you know, Soundgarden for that. You know, you could say the cult and stuff like that, and sort of new wave stuff before that, and even Van Halen. And you know, you know, we we're always trying to be like somebody, which I guess all bands are on a certain level when they first start. I mean, um, but it's always a con- a great band is a combination of four people trying to be in four different bands, <laughs> <laughs> and then they make a band. You know, Jane's Addiction, perfect example. The bass player trying to be in Joy Division, singer trying to sound like Susie. Sue or something like that, and the drummer is a Grateful Dead head drummer who and the guitarist the wants to be in Led Zeppelin. The guitar player wants to be in Van Halen or Zeppelin or he was a metal kid, Judas Priest. He likes all that shit. Oh yeah, Marl's a metal guy. Oh yeah, no, he's a so I've uh, it all kind of that was perfect marriage of four people going in four different directions, but then finding some finding some common ground. Obviously, there was some sort of leadership going on between Perrick and Perrick and Harry, <laughs> Eric and Perry. Anyways, I never found Jane's addiction. Um, I didn't even find Liquid Jesus for, or anything <laughs> like that, for that matter, or any of the other horrible bands that tried to follow. Or Greta, remember Greta? No. Oh, yeah. I probably would if I yeah. These LA are these sort of like the second coming of Nirvana's. Well, there was the second coming of Jane's Addictions. You know, floppy hats and right dudes dressing like girls and you know making out on stage and kind of being gothy and 
heroiny and all that shit. That's so yeah. It was you know a moment. Um, uh, Campfire Girls. They kind of came out. Of, oh yeah, I they kind of came out Girls, of yeah. that second wave of that. You know, um, um, Weezer sort of crept out of that world a little bit. They were obviously trying to be a little bit more like. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, what are they called? God damn, Jack. Anyways, um, there was nothing happening. By the time I got up to LA, it was pretty dead, anyways. It really was. I mean, you know, it, it seemed like the, it had all passed me by. So, what year was this that you got to LA? I'm 90, 91. And then all the. But now they call the hair metal thing was just kind of dying down, thankfully. And but the you know, you could just kind of get a sense that like the Guns N' Roses had already happened, the Jane's Addiction already happened, the yeah. Chili Peppers had already happened. And there was a little thing going on in Silver Lake and you know, I suppose, but nothing like it nothing like this sort of you just didn't feel like there was this new energy. golden age of energy of rock, you know. It, just, it felt like it was the last limp. So I ended up moving back down to my parents' house, working at a music store, thinking I would probably, at best, you know, get a really good wedding band together at some point, maybe or something. I just wanted to play drums, you know. I didn't, I didn't really know who with or with what. I, and then we had a band. That I put together down there, and you know, we'd make good demos, but once again, we were just trying to sound like sort of Jane's Addiction or something. And Sylvia Dreams of Angels <laughs> can't get any more 90s than that, can you? And, um, yeah, it's funny, it doesn't work as a band name, but I think it would be a cool like movie name. It was called, name. well, we eventually I got the guy, the lead singer, to shorten it to Sylvia, which was just you know, Alice in Chains, Jane's Addiction, it's all that yeah. era, you know. And I could play you stuff, and then you would be like, "Yeah, Jane, I played it for Perry the other day, actually." And he <laughs> had a laugh. I said, "Listen to what my band tried was trying to sound like." He's like, "Well, you guys are pretty good, actually, man." I'm like, "Yeah, but you guys have already had already done it." Like, <laughs> but you know, when you're 19, you're just still sort of like, it's all gimmicks and and copycatting. You know, I mean, if yeah. you watch me play drums on Alanis Morissette, I was biting Steve Perkins' style very heavily. And um, anyways, turning point. Got sort of grounded, stuck at my parents' house. Dad, going, what the fuck are you gonna do with your life? You told I told you you were gonna be a fucking loser. You're not gonna live on my couch the rest of your life, kind of thing. Plus, you maybe you should go to college. Okay. So I gave that a, a, a little last ditch effort, but I happened to get this job at this music store at the same time, which just you know allowed me to be able to go get my own apartment and kind of like start. You know, um, getting out of my parents' house <laughs> and coming up to LA a lot more and playing gigs with my band up here and and doing those you know fucking coconut teaser no bozo jams and those kind of things you know just and I started getting recognized by 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 management people and record company people like you know your band may not be very good but you 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 got, you got something kid. You got that thing, kid. <laughs> and um, so I tried out for El Magnifico. I uh, did a couple demo sessions with Tommy Stinson when he'd gotten a record deal with Bash and Pop. Um, you know, just started, I was kind of, I always felt like I was following in Josh 
Freese's shadow. He was always <laughs> like, oh, he played with Jack Grisham on his solo record. And then I would get a call to go play with Jack Grisham. And then, oh, Josh Freese was once here, you know? So I kept sort of following in Josh Freese because he was kind of the, from that area, everyone, the one everyone was really talking about. So I was sort of like the second rate Josh Freese. Funny enough, he tried out for the Foo Fighters the day before I did. <laughs> um, anyways, but that was like... So wait, a, so you've never played for Trent Reznor, though? No way, and there's no way I could. Josh is amazing. Josh is a master. He really is. Josh is, of, Josh is a machine. Me, I'm not, really. I'm more of a, of a, of a scrappy rock and roll drummer. Um, so I have nothing but total utter respect for Josh Freese as a drummer, and and he's a great guy, and I love him. And, and um and as an artist and a musician and everything, he's a great musician. But he can do that, you know. He can walk into the studio and go, "Okay, um, I have a session with Taylor Swift later, and then yeah, I can do your Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails song, and then I got to go do a dog food commercial." And he can do it very well and very gracefully, and and the producers and engineers will be happy, and you know, he's that's his talent, you know, not mine. Um, terrible session musician. Um, so, but that was a turning point. That really was the biggest turning point. And then I kind of like zeroed in and got serious and like kind of mellowed out on, on you know, just, and it just, I just kind of got a focus in my mind. Now, once I started getting this, these sort of itches from these record company folks and management folks, like, well, maybe you will fit in this. Then I kind of went, okay. I sort of changed my reference frame and went, okay, well, my band doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. We're not really that good. Um, but I'm playing, and I'm playing out, and people are seeing me play, and that's working on a certain level. So I got uh, an audition for this girl's Sass Jordan, the one that led me to Atlantis, and um, I went up for my first audition. I didn't know any of the music. I went and bought the, the, the cassette or CD, probably cassette. Of her record Rats, and um, I learned the three songs they told me to. I came up there, and there's a Stevie Salas guy who was the musical director, and he had been around. You know, he played with Rod Stewart and done this, and knew that guy, and knew this guy, and friends with Terrence and Starby, and you know, he was somebody, and I was a nobody. And I walked into his little bunker rehearsal room that he had in North Hollywood, and I played for him. And he goes, um, "Come back in a week, learn how to play these songs." And he kind of gave me that speech, like, you have something that you can't learn. I don't know what that is, but you have something you can't learn. And, but you're going to have to learn, too, how to keep time and be a, a, you know, a accompanist, not a fucking solo artist on the drums. Because <laughs> essentially that's what I was, you know. I was like, look at me, look at me, look at me. So that was a school of the hard knocks. I mean, so I came back a week later he begrudgingly gave me the gig and he said, I'm going to kick your fucking ass every day for the next fucking two weeks until we hit the road. And, he and this was the SAS gig, right? This was the SAS gig. Okay. Another turning point. That turning point for me was me realizing that I'm not the greatest drummer in the world and I'm actually a piece of shit drummer and, and I have a lot of work to do. And um, But luckily I had the energy and the youth and the the sort of the sort of thick skinness and and the sort of vision to just like because basically they said we'll give you the gig you, you know maybe four hundred bucks a week maybe maximum when we're on the road 
probably no, um, you know, when we're not on the road, money probably at all. But it was a, but we're, we got to, you know, we're going to Europe, we got a tour bus, we're going to open up for Aerosmith, we're going to do all these festivals. And I'm looking at the list of these bands on these festivals, and some of them were pretty fucking beat, you know. They were like German, you know, rock festivals, but something like Aerosmith, you know, I mean, that's a big fucking deal, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally coming from obscurity. So I, you know, I worked really hard to try and make Stevie Salas happy. And I never really did. But um, he fired me almost every night on that tour and the, and the next tour. So I ended up playing with her for about six to eight months. And um, I was yeah I was always on the brink of getting fired for not being a professional enough drummer really, but I had that thing, the you know, undefinable thing. I guess whatever the intangible, the yeah, the intangible, the X factor, whatever it is, that thing. Um, it's funny because I did an interview. Travis Barker's making a, making a documentary about Travis, and around and then okay, so the turning points. So that the next turning point was we get this tour with Sass. Opening up for um, Steve Perry from Journey. Luckily, Stevie Salas had quit the touring band by then. I was quite happy about that. And um, I'm not that I didn't learn a lot from him because I really did, and I needed I needed those lessons. I really did because I really did think I was really great until I met him, and it really <laughs> was necessary for me to realize I'm not or I wasn't. I have a lot of work to do. I was going to say I think that's I talk about this with people all the time, and I do think that one of the most freeing things that can happen to you. Is to realize, oh shit, I don't know everything. Yeah, really. and when you realize you don't know anything, yeah, it, it is very liberating because it's tiring thinking you're always right. Yes, I know. Trust me, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know at all anymore. But I did at that time. I well, mean, I think every fucking kid between the age of eighteen and twenty-two, now eighteen and twenty-five, thinks they know everything. In well, the you world. need that confidence, though. You, you know, do need that I mean, confi- yeah. you know, I was cocky still. You know. Oh yeah, and um, I was. Cocky. I still am, but yeah, I, yeah, I was cocky, and I and I, I knew what I could do, and I knew I could entertain people when I got on a drum set, and I knew I could drive a band. I always knew I could do that, and and that's 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 just getting through the door. Yeah, I mean, it's like look at the lead singer syndrome, man. Yeah, <laughs> if you if you don't have the confidence to have eighteen thousand people look at you. And that Jesus complex. Absolutely. Have you put your fucking arms up and everybody does it too? Absolutely, man. You know? It's like Brent, you know, who plays in Chevy Metal. Um, he goes out and tours with Sebastian Bach. And that guy, when he gets up on stage, is just, you know, he's all of a sudden, he becomes that dude. Yeah. And he's still good at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, even Axel, Axel Rose. I saw Guns N' Roses a couple of years ago, and he starts rolling his eyes and doing his snake dance. And it doesn't matter that he doesn't look like the heroin chic, <laughs> red siren, beautiful Axl Rose of nineteen eighty-seven. You know, he looks like all of us. He's getting older, you know. Look at Perry, dude. Like, I mean, it's uh, funny, and I love this. By the way, is I'm cracking up internally as you're doing this because it's like, you know, it's amazing how all this shit comes so full circle. And of course, you just presented the award to Lannis last week, no, but then you have, you know, you said you wanted to be Jane's Addiction, and you have Perry on your record, and you opening for Aerosmith, and now you know you guys are honoring Aerosmith at Music Cares. Yeah, I know. You know, is it weird to like look back and think of like, oh shit, all those things that I wanted 25 years ago that I thought were impossible. All in some way, shape, or form, kind of came true. Well, I, I mean, do, you wanted to be the drummer in the biggest band in the world. I, absolutely, and you're one of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was always my dream. I wanted to be in Queen. You know, I wanted uh-huh. to be in. 
I wanted to be in, I never, I didn't, you know, I didn't, a lot of the guys in my band came from this sort of punk rock background. And um, I, I really didn't. I came from, I went from new wave to maybe a little 80s butt rock, you know, in the middle there with Van Halen. I love Van Halen. I think they're one of the greatest fucking bands ever walked the planet Earth. And I wouldn't put them in any category with any, what we would call hair metal band. I just wouldn't. Oh, God, no. No, fuck no. They're, they're right there with Led Zeppelin. And and uh, Eddie and Alex are fucking geniuses, and so is David Lee Roth. And Michael Anthony is one of the greatest background vocalists of all fucking time. So you can't touch Van Halen. Fuck you if you think you can. Um. Anyways, <clears throat> uh, yeah, with Chevy Battle, you guys do it all the time and have yeah, fun with it. Yeah, we play a lot of Van Halen. I mean, Alex lives down the street. And Alex gave me that snare drum right there. It's the best sounding snare drum I have. I played it on every fucking song on my new Coattail Riders record. He's a beautiful guy. Once you get to know him, and um, I love him, and he's he's super rad. Oh, dude, I I've only got to interview Eddie once, and it was so funny because it was supposed to be a half hour interview. Once he he felt comfortable, huh? And then he got talking, huh? Two fucking hours, and it's so funny because I'm it's like, dude, it was a phone interview, and I had to pee so bad. I'm like, well, what do you do? You can't tell Eddie Van Halen. You have to be. You're like, cool. You're like Eddie. Just keep talking. Well, he's just a fucking. He's a genius, man. Yeah, he's a fucking genius. Two hours, and you're like, sure. Well, yeah, if Eddie I'll wants t- to talk take, all day. I'll take four hours of Eddie Van Halen. That's yeah. fine. Um, anyway, but it's funny as you were playing that snare drum then on the new Kotel Riders album. Did you feel the spirit of Van Halen? I always feel the spirit of Van Halen. I always feel the feel spiel. I always feel the spirit of Jane's Addiction. I always feel the spirit of the of John Lennon or Solo or the Beatles of Queen of the Sweet of Neil Young Crazy Horse of of early the first four or five U two records um, uh, of. James Gang, and then when I'm stacking harmonies, the the Eagles, um, and and Andy Gibb. Whenever I just stand up there with a microphone, or Bowie is always there with me. I mean, I feel the spirit of all of them. That's my whole rec. It's my whole. It's my musical DNA. Um, much like we were talking about Kanye earlier, where I kind of call this music clip art. Well, I would call my music clip art for sure. I mean, you know. Uh, I, I don't care if it sounds like sweet for a second or if I sound like the cars for a second or if I sound like Jane's Addiction for a second. It I'm just having fun. Totally just having fun. That's it. I'm make when I make records by myself, I'm having fun. That's the for no other fucking reason. Um and I'm just trying to impress myself with what comes out of the speakers. I always want to try a new thing, you know, I made this really over the top Totally harmony laden, crazy, you know, stacked harmony record. Next one I want to be like fucking London Calling or something. Well, it's so funny though, because I think that, you know, I talk about this with musicians all the time, right? And most musicians today do other things, whether it is like Alanis and I were talking about it, you know? Right. And she has, like, for her, she's very into design at this point, right? Right. Or like Brandon Boyd, who, you know, is a friend and he yeah. was painting and stuff. And it's like, there's something freeing about. And Navarro's really into, into art now. That's what he does for fun now, like, yeah. for, for his art. You know, I'm begging, I've been trying to get him to come over and I really want to make a, a record for him. Like I really want to make like a sort of really dense, stony, fucking psychedelic fucking record with Navarro, and really like dig into him as a guitar player, and then 
He's a very acerbic guy and oh, yeah. very witty, very intelligent. Oh, yeah. And I kind of want to just like follow him around with a notebook and like write down his his smart ass commentary and then help him cuz I don't know if he really knows how to like pick up a guitar and write a song or I could pick up the guitar right now and with three basic cowboy chords and I could write a song for you and you could give me a title and I could write it for you. I mean, it wouldn't be great necessarily, but I could do it. And um, I th- he probably could do it. I guess he just doesn't have that that, that sort of ego to think he could. You know, well, I know he made a solo record once, but it wasn't it wasn't really. It sounded like he'd labored over it for too long, and it was all it was everywhere. But you know, there's a guitar player that that you know now has become someone more known for like TV sh- like shows about about tattoos and shit. And you know, I I, w- I hope I hope at some point that. Dave Navarro and Steve Perkins and Jane's Addiction Perry get get there and do. They should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if if that thing if it really means anything. Well, Perry and I have talked about it at length. It means a lot to him. I, you know, it shouldn't because I agree with you on because that. Because the problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I should probably stop and not talk about this because it's a bit political, but. But it's up to you because I mean, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. I mean, it's well, my, I mean, my favorite you know, interview I, mean, I ever did. It with. You've watched it turn. I mean, obviously, after Zeppelin and Cream and and all the like, the for sure's yeah are in there. Well, then then there's like you know, well, why isn't King Crimson in there? Because I I think if Yes is in there, which they should have been in there long before they were, um, then King Crimson should have been there before them, because King Crimson made a record. That created what people now call that dirty word, but it but the first couple of years of it were great, progressive rock. The first couple of early Genesis records, the first couple of early Yes records, um, up to Fragile and, and Close to the Edge. I mean, they're fucking great records. And those wouldn't have happened if Court of the Crimson King hadn't have been made. That just wouldn't have happened. It just fucking wouldn't have happened. And I mean, look, to me, I, and Nirvana, who's Fucking amazing and one of the greatest bands of the world and deserved to be absolutely in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It, I don't know if that door would have been as open if for them if Jane's Addiction hadn't come around the corner and bridged that gap between hard rock and college rock. Probably not. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Obviously, Nirvana was the right time for that to happen because it was this the. The, you know, because the 90s didn't really end until 1991, 92. The 80s didn't really end until, you know, uh, I mean, the 80s, the 90s didn't start until 91, 92. The 80s didn't end until 91, 92. And the 60s didn't end until 71, 70. I always think that there's a two or yeah. three, two year gap, grace period of, or something. Anyways, so yeah, that was a long rant. Back to turning points. Um, <laughs> That's all good. Yeah, I did, so I did this tour with Sass, and we um, we ended up opening up for Steve Perry, who I got to know pretty well on that tour. Actually, he was a trippy cat, but really nice, and um, and very, very like he couldn't understand where I was coming from as a drummer because he's a drummer, and he couldn't believe I was hitting the drums that hard. But he was, but he loved it, and he and he actually loved my drumming, and even talked to me a little bit about playing with him at some point, and I was like. Oh, dude, you don't want me to play drums with you. <laughs> you do not want me to play drums. You don't want to hear me play Journey songs. 
They'll be too fast and too heavy and too obnoxious. And but yet he doesn't play dirty songs anymore anyway, so it's all good. Doesn't he? Oh, you know, well, he didn't tour for this record. He yeah. said he was go- it, well, actually when I talked to him, he said he was considering it, and he did say if he did, he would play Journey songs. Well, but- of course, no, I did a whole tour with him playing Journey songs. Okay. It, was, it was fun because I mean, you know, that was like when I was a kid, and, and nine, and from from the age of like eight until the age of like twelve, Journey were one of the biggest bands in the world. So like when you went roller skating, you did a slow roller skate to you know. Who's crying now? Who's crying now? Yeah. Oh, who didn't fucking slow roller skate to open arms? Exactly. So, uh, no, I mean, so I found it once again. I mean, here I am playing with Sass Jordan in the opening act, you know, sharing freaking, you know, holiday in rooms with the drum tech, which was, I mean, first class as far as I was concerned at that point. I was traveling. I'd been at, like, you know, we did, we were doing eight week tours of America. And I was like, why isn't it 12 weeks? <laughs> There's so many other fucking places we could go. And, you know, meet, you know, banging strippers and fucking partying and seeing the world and seeing America and just having a fucking blast. So, like, oh, my God, that first, I, even though that first Sass Jordan tour was an ass kicker for me as far as, like, a learning curve, especially when Stevie was the guitar player, it was also maybe the funnest I've ever had in my life. Because, you know, and I really thought, well, I, I know at least I made it to the big time. And, and that's all I really ever, and that's really kind of was my dream, you know, because like I said, everyone came from this sort of punk pedigree and from my band, you know, Dave being in Scream and Pat starting the Germs and, and Nate being in Sunny Day Real Estate. And, um, and I was like, I went to one punk rock show in Huntington Beach and I don't even remember. I think it was the Circle Jerk. I can't remember. I was DI. I know that in 1981 with one of my friends, and I just saw a bunch of white supremacist dudes beating the shit out of each other. So I wanted no part of it. Yeah. So that was punk rock to me. And not and I and I loved new wave. I, and I considered the Sex Pistols and the Clash and stuff like that more new wave. I didn't consider it that the 80s hardcore thing that started happening in California, and I, I wasn't interested. And I know Dave was. I mean, and he built a lot of what his value, like you know. But I mean, he also, you know, he was he had Ian MacKay. It was a little bit of a higher value sort of sense of what they were doing in DC, and you know, their bad brains and all that. I just all I saw where we were from in Orange County was a bunch of fucking white people beating the shit out of each other. Well, in Orange County, yeah, that's you know. Yeah, yeah, and I've talked to Pat Smear about it. He said the Orange County people ruined the LA punk scene. I said, I know, dude. I mean, I went to one of those gigs. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. I was not interested at all. I wanted to see beautiful girls and stuff, and like see a good band play, tight and good. You know, that's what I wanted. Um, I wanted the police. <laughs> you know. Anyways, um, learning curves, yes. Turning points, yes. Did a tour opening up for Steve Perry. That was really fun. Getting to know him and watching him run a sound check. Very, very sharp and diligently, and run a band very tight. Um, and at the very end of that, we we played the three nights at the Pantages Theater. And throughout this tour, um, this guy Scott. Um, Welch, Scott Welch was kind of a day-to-day person for Steve Perry at a bigger management company, Third Rail, I think it was called. I don't know, I think it was Third Rail. 
And um, it was the same guy whose son ended up doing the Green Day records, but he ran Hollywood Records forever. Uh, anyways, anyway, that I digress. But but they had signed Alanis Morissette at this point to a, 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 a I guess she's got a record deal with Maverick, which was Madonna's label. I didn't know any of this stuff. All I knew was Steve Perry's day-to-day guy kept saying to me, I really like the way you play drums. And he'd come out and visit Steve for a couple days on tour, and I'd hang out with him and say, really like your style, really like what you're doing. And I'm like, well, I'm just ripping off Steve Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he just kept saying that. And, he, and then he goes, you know, there's this girl that we signed to our management company, and she's making a record right now. And it's, she's doing it really quick, and it's coming out really amazing. She's going to need a touring band, and I want it to be a rock band. And um, I think you would be the great, a great drummer for it. And I'm like, hey, dude, this, this. And at this point, the SAS Jordan ship was sinking big time. The record company wasn't giving any more money. I was not getting any more raises. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, she was disgruntled. She was pissed because the record didn't do good, and she was in debt probably to the record company. And you know, it was that thing. You could see the ship kind of going down. Um, and I don't just don't think she ever found her lane necessarily. Was, she, you know, she was sounded like she sounded like the Black Crows with a girl singer. She's an amazing singer, and she ended up becoming one of those um, Canada's Got Talent. Kind of host people up in Canada and had a great career for herself, and she still tours a lot up there. So she's got a good career up there. She's 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 a survivor. She's got a career. Great woman. Still in touch with her. Sass Jordan, love you. Thanks. Really, that was my first real break. But so the last show we played at the Pantages Theater, I meet Alanis Morissette. She walks. She's very quiet. Just kind of like a little hippie, you know. And we just sit on some road cases. And Scott's like, this is Alanis. Alanis, this is Taylor. And she's like, hi, I really enjoyed your drumming. (laughs) And I I said, well, I heard you made a record or you're making a record. She goes, yeah, it's coming out really good. Maybe we can get together and play a little bit. I'm like, okay, great. So, um, and it was really, you know, it was like literally, and it was literally five minutes. I thought, well, she's sweet and cute and all, all that stuff, you know, and uh, and nice, and she was very quiet. She was not the angry, you know, loud girl that people think that. She, and she still isn't, you know. Um, she can do it on stage when she wants to, but you know, she can put it in a lyric. But she's mellow, really. Um, and um, so, a couple months go by. I don't hear anything. I'm touring with another band called Numb, who are trying to get a record deal down at South by Southwest and we do like a two week tour and somehow we got money to pay for, you know, a couple motel six rooms and a van. And we did like a two or three week tour from New York all the way down to Texas and back, which was a total shit show, but it was fun. It was fun. Um, anyways, um, that didn't really lead anywhere. And when I was on that tour, I got a call from my mom who said, "Hey, I got a call from this guy Scott, who says he's he says they're doing tryouts for this girl that you'd met." I went, "Cool." So I got home and I called Scott and I said, "Hey, yeah, I want to try out." So they sent me a cassette of three the three songs and and it was "You Ought to Know" and it was um, I don't remember what the other ones were. Probably "Hand in My Pocket" and "You Learn." And so I went, and that was a turning point. And I listened to those three songs with my girlfriend in the car. I remember at the time, 
And I was like, the first time I heard you, I don't know, I was like, well, that's a fucking hit song. I mean, I'm not an A&R guy. It's not even really something that I would really probably, it's not heavy enough for me. I mean, at that point, I'm listening to, you know, Tool's first EP and fucking Porno for Pyro's first record and uh, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. And that's what I'm, I'm listening to. I'm not listening to drum loops with girls, you know, singing over it, you know. Um, but I knew it was good. I knew the quality was there and I knew that the hit potential was there. And her, I knew her voice was like magnificent. And, you know, she had all these good, like great harmonies and stuff on the record. So I just kind of knew it was good. I, I just, there was something in my gut that just said, this, <clears throat> this is just going to go nuclear. And I kind of had my own little, like, I lived with five girls at the time, my girlfriend and four of her friends. I mean, okay. you know, that's back in the day when you'd rent a house with like five other friends. In Laguna, you know, and it was, it was, uh, you know, and so, I, so you had basically your own focus group. I had my own little focus, focus group. For the yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like, okay, yeah. I remember getting all the girls in there and we're all sitting around taking bong rips and like listening to this. And they're all probably saying, this is the greatest shit they've ever heard. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, they, and they, but they thought it was. They, they all, oh, knew, dude, I fucking love that they record. All knew, I love her. I mean, you yeah. knew the second you fucking heard it, you were like, well, this is going to go fucking bananas. So I go to the tryout. I, I, Bullshit my way into the gig. I get the gig. I think I already had the gig, really. Um, uh, and we, and then Alanis goes on a tour of record of uh, radio stations. You know, I mean, they really set it up right. A Scott Welch guy it was world domination. That was that was the intent from second one. And um, and you need to have that to do it. Our manager in the Foo Fighters has it. It's all like. We're gonna go to fucking Australia twice every album cycle. We're gonna go to Japan. We're gonna go twice to England. You're gonna, that's how you get big in this business, and you keep going back. That's how the people go. Why are the Foo Fighters so popular? We keep on fucking going. We never stop. We keep on showing up. We keep on going. Dave keeps coming up with an interesting marketing strategy or a you know, movie idea or a or a and a good song and a couple good songs every record and. And we just keep doing it. And they definitely had a, their their shit together when it came to that Atlantis record. I think they knew there was something special. And, you know, we put the band together and she took off and we just put the set together and she walked right into the room. First time, we're like, well, we know the whole record. And so she picked up a microphone and we played it from top to bottom. I think we did it in order of the record. Either that or we created a little, like, show that had... and. You know, we like I said, we were in Floyd and Jane's Addiction and all that stuff. So, because it was only ten songs, I think, or whatever, eleven songs maybe. Um, I think there's eleven on that record. I yeah. think maybe. Yeah, we had a, we created all these little segues, and I was in a porno for Pyro, so I had like chimes and bells, and you know, we kind of created this sort of psychedelic hard rock Alanis Morissette band. It was a fucking good band. Um, Ch- Chris Cheney, who's in Jane's Addiction now, played bass. He's one of the fucking greatest bass players on the planet. Yeah. Um, I had brought Nick Lashley in from from Sass Jordan. She, he's a great guitar player, English guy. He's written a lot of hits with his wife now. And he's just a good guy, good player. Jesse Tobias, who plays with Morrissey now, was the guitar player. He played in Chili Peppers for like one hot minute. Ha ha. <laughs> for Dave Navarro joined. And, um, and we did a show for Madonna, I remember, at Third Encore. 
that big old rehearsal place. Mm-hmm. And we and my friend Stephen Chu from Laguna came and set up the stage with all these tapestries and lamps and made it look like you know like if I can old Jane's addiction sort of very nineties sort of you know I don't know uh, incense and all you know that kind of shit you know. Um, and Alanis was into it, and we did our first show as a as a band at Third Encore, and it was fucking great. I still have a photo from that show of us, and um, and then we did a couple little club shows here in L.A., and then she put the first thing that you ought to know came out, and we went and did a video in Death Valley, and the first real video I was ever in, and then that hit hit the radio, and that hit MTV. And by the third, fourth show, the single had been out, and there's lines around every building wherever we played. And then on, and halfway on the, that tour in a van, we toured in a van for the first three months, four months of that. Uh, I remember we had a big, giant cell phone that the <laughs> tour manager carried. <clears throat> and um, he, I remember him calling, or, or Scott Welch calling on it and said, I don't know, you guys, uh, Alanis sold a million records already in the first month or whatever it was, something bananas like that. And you're doing MTV Awards with the Chili Peppers and Oasis and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, what the fuck? No way. I remember pulling over the van and we beat the shit out of this van, throwing rocks at the van and, you know, celebrating, rolling a big joint and just celebrating. And um, just just going, tell, calling all my friends that I could get a hold of when I got back to when I got to the hotel room. I'm playing MTV Awards. <laughs> that was the turning point, and that was the first time, really, I think, the world saw me play drums. And I met Dave around that point. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you have been here on my turning point. Man, we promised you a fun talk, and. Uh, did not lie. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Taylor Hawkins as much as we did. See you next week. you're probably worried that your child is feeling scared sad or alone when all you want is for them to just feel like a kid camp kesem is a free week-long overnight camp for children ages 6 to 18 who have a parent facing cancer and was created for kids like yours to have a joyful and empowering summer kids have a blast together enjoying camp activities surrounded by a compassionate community of friends register your child for a free life-changing adventure at kesem.org camp Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. What would you do to achieve the American dream? 
The big house. The happy family. The money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.